0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Since the last Ice Age ended about 12,000 years ago, human beings have traveled along the Klamath River and its tributaries in the northwest corner of California, extending into southern Oregon. Many people, finding an abundance of food, have stayed. The main source of their food was salmon. The power of the myth of the salmon may derive from the fact that wild salmon spread out across the Pacific Northwest about the same time that human beings did at the end of the last ice age. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Steve Most, author of River of Renewal, Myth and History in the Klamath Basin. A book that tells the story of the history of the Klamath River and the people who have lived there continuously for the past 12,000 years. Steve Most is a playwright and documentary storyteller who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Among many other works, he wrote the texts, audio voices, and videos for the permanent exhibit at the Washington State History Museum. In this interview, recorded in mid-March, 2007, I spoke with Steve Most from his home in Berkeley, California. We began our conversation when I asked him to give a perspective of the geological and human aspects of the Klamath River and its place in history.
1: In our society, people tend to think in terms of our own lifespan or, or several generations, and it's hard to imagine a longer time period affecting human life. Indigenous societies tend to have a much longer time span and oral tradition and myth that connect people's lives with um, a very long time ago, and, and that connection is with the land and the other animals. Um, what People are beginning to think in terms of now, though, is geological time, because human activities are affecting the Earth as a whole, and now we're talking about um, periods of climate change that haven't been equaled for thousands of years. So it looks like um, a kind of thinking about our life in a particular place is changing from the short time span that's been characteristic of um, our civilization during most of my lifetime to a much longer span of time. And I've been trying to write a history that looks at life in the Klamath Basin in terms not only of um, historical time since the gold rush when non-Indians came there, but also in terms of geological time.
0: Well, what is it that you have found that makes the Klamath Basin unique to other parts of the world?
1: The Klamath Basin is unique in a, in a number of ways. It's, it, it has extraordinary biodiversity. It's one of the most biodiverse temperate uh, mountain regions on the planet. But it's also an extraordinary place in that uh, it has a vital indigenous culture. The largest California tribes are there, the three largest tribes, and the largest Oregon tribe. And in the case of the California tribes, they still, to some extent, have a culture and a way of life that's based on salmon. One doesn't see that uh, in many other places. It's also extraordinary in that the usual political lines um, have been breaking down in the last few years, so that while there has been tremendous uh, polarization between the farmers and ranchers on the one hand, and the people who fish, including the Indians on the other. In recent years, people have been finding common ground.
0: What is that common ground?
1: Common ground is that the people of the Klamath Basin want to stay there. They have ways of life that are family-based. It's an area where there are still small farmers and families that own ranches rather than large corporations.
0: And you're speaking of people of European descent as well as native people.
1: That's right. Uh, but what they have in common is a love of the land, a way of living that's outdoors, and a desire to continue living there for future generations. And what they found is that the resource scarcities, especially of water and wildlife, is affecting everyone. And that if, uh, if they continue to be in opposition, if they try to settle things with civil disobedience, with lawsuits, with Uh, bringing the government in on one side and then the other, uh, they're not going to be able to enjoy their lives and be productive.
0: Let's go back in... um into the history of the salmon. You mention in the River of Renewal that the wild salmon uh, came from the Pacific to the west coast of North America about uh, the same time that uh, human beings uh, walked across the Bering Straits and down into the same region and settled in the Klamath River Basin uh, because of its peculiar well, it's peculiarness. Can you describe that to us? Why? What is so unique about the geological structure and the biodiversity that has maintained the people and the uh, wildlife?
1: There's still dispute about when human beings first came to, to America, and it's even possible that people didn't come across the Bering Strait. They might have come by boat. But uh, what is clear is that during the last ice age, there was a tremendous uh, ice cover over the Pacific Northwest, uh, half a mile of ice over what is now Puget Sound, for example. Uh, It was when the uh, ice began to recede, when the glaciers receded, that people were able to inhabit areas of of the Pacific Northwest, including the Klamath Basin. And that's also the time that the salmon found their ways up uh, up the rivers of the region. Um, one of the characteristics of the Klamath Basin that makes it really unique is that it's been a refuge because it was south of the major area of glaciation. And it's been west. It, it is west of the volcanic areas. There was a huge volcanic eruption that went all the way from Oregon into Canada um, spreading uh, ash. Uh, Mount Mazama about 7,000 years ago, it's still a volcanic area up there in the upper Klamath Basin. Well, the lower area by the river has been a refuge where uh, plant and animal species were able to uh, survive periods of glaciation and, and volcanic activity. So it's, it's been a refuge. It's also been a refuge for people. During the time when many uh, people in the 60s were leaving conflict over the Vietnam War, were discovering a counterculture, many people moved into the Klamath Basin and also further south to develop alternative lifestyles. So one definitely sees it in that respect. The remoteness of the Klamath Basin has protected The tribes to some extent. The area by the coast was not as affected by the gold rush as the upper basin, as the mid-Klamath, because the Argonauts, the, the 49ers, came inland further south. So what is extraordinary is that you have near the mouth of the Klamath, Yurok families that have been there for countless generations. One doesn't find that anywhere else. In California.
0: You also talk about the Klamath being unique in the flow of the watercourse, the placement of the wetlands, and the water quality. Can you explain that for us and, and why it is that way?
1: There are a couple of unique things about the Klamath as far as the water is concerned. In most uh, river systems, you'll find that the wetlands tend to be near the mouth, around the estuary. Um, you see that with the Mississippi River in New Orleans for example but the wetlands in the Klamath Basin are near the headwaters and there used to be huge lakes there before the Klamath project. Another characteristic of rivers is that typically the water quality gets worse as you go downriver. In the case of the Klamath Basin it's the opposite the Agricultural and ranching areas are upriver in southern Oregon and northern California um, in the upper tributaries of the Klamath. But as you get below the dams, uh, where there's more rainfall, where there's less farming, the water quality actually improves.
0: Steve Most, author of River of Renewal, Myth and History of the Klamath Basin, you also discussed the issue of how the water flow is being altered by dams. And those dams along the Klamath River are now in question as to whether they should remain. What's the background?
1: The Klamath River was once a great salmon-producing river. Third, after the Columbia and Sacramento. uh, There were canneries at the mouth of the river. In one day, in 1912, 17,000 salmon were caught for the canneries by Yurok Indians with gill nets. The first of the four hydroelectric dams in the Klamath came in in 1918. Uh, Pretty soon there weren't uh, record runs, in fact, they weren't catching spring chinook anymore the fish that migrated farthest up into Oregon and within a decade the canneries all were closed so the dams on the Klamath by cutting off a tremendous amount of habitat and also affecting the flow of the river um, and the amount of water in the river have had a tremendous impact on salmon. Every community in the Klamath Basin has suffered as a result of that. Uh, From the farmers who had their irrigation water cut off because of endangered coho to of course the tribes whose fishing was outlawed for for forty years. Um, They were blamed for the decline of salmon rather than the dams. The commercial fishing people have had severe cutbacks the last two years. So everybody has taken a hit because of the collapse of the salmon, except for Pacific Corps, the company that owns the dams. But what has happened is that um, a relicensing process is reaching a culmination. The hydroelectric dams on the Klamath um, have to either be recommissioned or decommissioned, relicensed or decommissioned. And the licenses ran out last year. And there's currently negotiation about what will follow.
0: Who is doing the negotiation?
1: The negotiations are being engaged in by Pacific Corps, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, representatives of the two states involved, California and Oregon, representatives of the Department of Interior and of Commerce, and uh, certain stakeholders, including people representing the tribes, the farm communities, and commercial fishing people.
0: Do you know what the status of them uh, of the negotiations is?
1: The negotiations are secret, but uh, and and the negotiations may go on for another year and a half, uh, which would require interim relicensing of the dams. But what I hear is that uh, the strong likelihood is an outcome of dam removal rather than relicensing. Because of the collapse of the commercial fishing industry due to the decline of Klamath salmon last year and the year before, the states of California and Oregon put pressure on the Bush administration to require fish passage as a condition for relicensing. And it turns out that fish passage would cost $100 million more than dam removal and replacement of the energy the hydroelectric dams provide. So for pure economic reasons, there is um, motivation for Pacific Corps to participate in dam removal.
0: Does Pacific Corps acknowledge the economic benefits of removing the dams?
1: Pacific Corps has denied that it is to their advantage to remove the dams so far. The study that showed that it would be $100 million dollars uh, less expensive to remove the dams and replace the energy is one that Pacific Corps has rejected. They're now citing an, an, a different study that suggests that the costs are more equivalent. What participants in the negotiations have suggested, uh, without breaking the secrecy of the talks themselves, is that this is a negotiating ploy. Pacific Corps wants the best possible deal, and by holding out for relicensing, they're putting pressure on the state and federal governments to, to sweeten the pot by providing as much money, for example, for uh, dam removal and habitat restoration.
0: In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Steve Most from his home in Berkeley, California. Steve Most is the author of River of Renewal, Myth and History, in the Klamath Basin. The Klamath Basin is located in the far north corner of California, uh, draining into the Pacific Ocean just south of the Oregon border. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Steve, is there a section of River of Renewal that you could read for us?
1: Well, there are several sections and uh, I, I think there's one that will be of interest to your listeners, Barry. I'd like to read about the um, difference between the relationship of nature that indigenous peoples have and that of Western civilization and also in what seems to be a con- convergence between them that I've been witnessing in the Klamath Basin. I'll preface that by mentioning that um, religious freedom with regard to natural places has been a major issue in the Klamath Basin, and there was a famous case uh, concerning the Go Road, the Gaskey-Orleans Road, which was a logging road that would have uh, disrupted the religious freedom of the Klamath River tribes who used the mountains, the high country, for praying and for uh, training of, of, uh, of doctors and other religious people. Uh, the Go Road case went against the tribes, but the high country became wilderness area in the state of California, so it still remains available to the tribes of the Klamath River. So I'm referring to the Go Road case at the beginning of this passage. In his dissent on the Go Road case, Justice Brennan noted a contrast between Western and indigenous religions that is related to the fundamental difference between perceiving land as an object to be used and land as sacred, Whereas the Judeo-Christian West used creation as the work of a deity who gave man dominion over physical nature. Quotes, tribal religions regard creation as an ongoing process in which they are morally and religiously obligated to participate. Close quotes. In a 2004 interview, sitting on Riverside Rock beside Jack Coler and Ron Reed, Leif Hillman explained, and Leif Hillman is the vice chair of the Karuk tribe, One thing that never ends, as long as Karuk people are here, is that responsibility. Speaking of the great transformation in which some of the original spirit people were changed into human beings, and others were changed into rocks, trees, fish, water, air, acorns, deer, all those things, Hillman said, all of those things are our relations. And with all of those things, we have this reciprocal relationship and we have a responsibility to look after their well-being. This sense of responsibility for other species, which Hillman expressed in terms of indigenous belief, Aldo Leopold considered an extension of ethics for humanity at large. While the golden rule tries to integrate the individual to society, and democracy attempts to integrate social organization to the individual, what Leopold called the land ethic integrates human beings into the biotic community as fellow members. Just as the premise of human-centered ethics is that the individual is a member of a community of interdependent parts, so the land ethic is based on the idea that human beings are citizens of a community that comprises the land and life around us. This enlarged understanding of community, according to Leopold, is an intellectual as well as ethical advance and I'm quoting him again here, many historic events, hitherto explained solely in terms of human enterprise, were actually biotic interactions between people and land. Close quotes, the wildlife and water crisis in the Klamath Basin is such an event. The notion that human communities share responsibility for the decline in the biotic community on which their own lives depend, came naturally, so to speak, to indigenous people whose Pikiawish ethos is a homegrown version of the land ethic. And I should say that Pikiawish is a Karuk word, which means fixing the world. Um, and of course, when salmon populations crash, the Karuk, the Yuroks, the Hoopa, the tribes of the Klamath River feel a sense of responsibility. If they ethical responsibility to do something about that.
0: Do they consider that the uh, salmon populations have crashed?
1: It's been a tremendous crisis for them. They used to feed everyone on salmon. Um, yes, indeed, the one species after another has, has crashed. The spring chinook were once the most abundant of the Klamath salmon. There's one Refugia River, a tributary of the Klamath, which is the Salmon River. And every year, Karuk, uh participate with people of the Forest Service and local community members in counting the spawning spring Chinook. Uh, I was there one year when about 200 were counted. Since then, less than 100 were counted. These are spawning spring Chinook. The coho salmon are on the endangered species list. Uh, the false Chinook populations. Well, I mentioned that uh, in one year, uh, in one day, 17,000 fish were caught. Now, biologists are hoping that in one year, 35,000 false Chinook will enter the river. So there's been a collapse of all of the species of the Klamath.
0: <clears throat> well, Steve, most looking at uh, the Klamath River Basin, as you have viewed it uh, for the past uh, approximately 30 years, culminating in your book, The River of Renewal, and taking that geographic area as a microcosm, how would you use that learning that, that you've gathered to interpret uh, the rest of society in which we live?
1: What the Karooks teach about Picky about fixing the world contains lessons for all of us, and I've seen it in action in the Klamath Basin. One of the lessons is that in order to fix the world, we have to fix our relationships with our neighbors and, and get over our bad feelings so that we can work together. And we have seen an unprecedented form of conflict resolution and consensus building between the tribes, the farmers, the ranchers, the commercial fishing people, the environmental communities up there, they have been fixing the world between themselves. Beyond that, uh, fixing the world involves recognizing responsibility that we have to the life and the land and the waters around us. This is something that human beings generally need to learn in this time of rapid climate change, which is also a time of a mass extinction of and, and the crash in the salmon populations on the Klamath, are just one example of what's happening around the world in every kind of habitat. So I think that if people can learn from what's happening in the Klamath Basin and learn from the tribes of the Klamath to take responsibility for what is happening in this wider biotic community that we're part of, then we can find the wisdom and the political ability to meet the tremendous challenge of this century.
0: Are there any specific tools that you could point to that are being used by the people of the Klamath Basin to achieve the goal?
1: There is a very powerful tool that has been developed in the Klamath Basin. It's a conflict resolution consensus building um, technique that was developed by Bob Chadwick. Chadwick was a former Forest Service supervisor who had communities within his area contending over, over the um, harvest of trees. People who are very polarized personally as well as in terms of their position on, on cutting trees. And what Bob Chadwick did was get large groups of people in a room and he developed procedures in which they spoke with each other and listened to each other with respect and got through their fears about what could happen uh, and what they could suffer because of what the others were doing and help them uh, hope for what was possible if they could work together. I have seen this in action in, in rooms of more than 70 people, people who had very strong feelings against each other, people who um, felt great fears about the future of their community because of what those Indians were doing or what those farmers were doing. And over several days, they come to really deep understanding that they do have common ground and they have plenty of motivation to work together. So this is a powerful technique that uh, has worked in other places, and I think it could be widely applied.
0: Well, Stephen Most, author of River of Renewal, Myth and History in the Klamath Basin, thanks for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately?
1: Actually, I've been going back to a classic, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I find him to be very much a contemporary, so I've been reading his uh, his essays and his uh, and his letters. He was a uh, an inspiration, and actually, neighbor to Thoreau. Uh, Muir was greatly influenced by him. Walt Whitman, and uh, he is. I think a contemporary who is worth paying attention to. I'm, I'm getting a lot out of reading Ralph Waldo Emerson.
0: Well, Steve Most, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: Well, thank you so much, Barry, for having me on your show.
0: Steve Most is the author of River of Renewal, Myth and History in the Klamath Basin. The book he recommends is the Essays and Letters of Ralph Waldo Emerson, All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere, to listen, download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. Our email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is post office box 7, Ukiah. U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482, and the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastad is the associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.